what people really forget, I think, is that half of conversion rate is traffic. So I think one of the things that I'm increasingly advising my smaller clients to do to optimize their conversion rate is to focus on getting better traffic. Sure, do the UX stuff, but once you've done that, stop. You know, I find that people are often really over-investing in some pretty junk paid social, under-investing in SEO. And I think if you can tune up your traffic channels, that can go a long way toward increasing your conversion rate as well. Hello and welcome to the Ecom Ops Podcast. We believe that there is more than enough content focused on e-commerce marketing and not enough content celebrating the real heroes of e-commerce, those running the operation. Each week, we find and interview an e-commerce operations expert to share the secrets behind how some of this industry's most exciting businesses are run. I'm your host, Norbert Strappler, the CEO of SingSpider. Hello and welcome to another Ecom Ops podcast. And today um, we have Oliver Palmas here on the show, who is an expert for optimization programs and uh, the discipline of data-driven experimentation. Hello, Oliver. Great to have you on the show. G'day, Norbert. Nice to be here. Yeah, really, really pleasure to have you. I, I told you already up front, first time that we have an optimization specialist here on the show. And I think this is so important for e-commerce. But Tell me a bit about yourself first. Tell me how did you get into that topic and why it is so important? Sure. Yeah. So I, I sort of straight after uh, I finished university, more or less, I um, ended up in London working at, as a contractor at Amazon in the UK. So that was my first ever e-commerce job doing merchandising. Um, and it was painful. Back then, if you wanted to make a change on Amazon's website, this is about 2006, you had to make a change on a spreadsheet, drop it on a server somewhere, and then about two weeks later, it would appear on the site and you would notice that you'd made a bunch of mistakes and you'd have to repeat the process again. <laughs> so, <laughs> so I did that for a little while, um, working in merchandising in their consumer electronics department. And then really, I'm a career contractor, so did a lot of other sort of... Um, different contracting jobs in e-commerce. I managed a, um, a magazine subscription website for a little while. Back in about 2008, um, the guy that I worked for was a McKinsey consultant who uh, had what seemed like a great idea at the time. He raised you know, a few million dollars and opened a bunch of very specialist magazine shops just as the market for magazines was completely falling off a cliff. Um, but I, I inherited the website from him and worked on optimizing um, yeah, a, a magazine subscription sales website, which I managed to do fairly successfully. The company is actually still around now, but they, they don't really sell many magazines anymore. And in doing so, this is probably circa 2008, 2009. And that was the time when Google had just released Google Website Optimizer. Um, are you familiar with that, that tool at all, Norbert? Yeah, I'm familiar with that, but uh, um, tell the audience a bit about it. Yeah, so it's, you know, it doesn't exist anymore, but it was, the, you know, it was the very first tool which allowed any idiot with a Google account to do A-B testing, essentially. You know, before then, you had to, you know, there were companies like Amazon, for instance, they had their own um, in-house tooling and, you know, data scientists even sort of 20, 25 years ago. And so they were running experiments and this was something apocryphally that I think lots of people knew about, but there was really no easy way for, for anyone to do it, particularly if you were working in smaller companies. There was, you know, I think the software that Adobe bought that was 
you know, target that became Adobe Target. That sort of exists. So there were some enterprise type solutions, but then Google dropped Google Website Optimizer and it meant that you could just start running tests and people did and I did and I ran a lot of bad tests as well you know classic things um, like changing button colors oh our button colors are red that means stop if we make them green does that mean go um, and, and the classics you know, the, 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 the these classics. are the classics yeah yeah 100% I literally like that was the first test I ever ran more or less and and it in even, you know, misinterpreted the results, thought they were statistically significant, thought I'd found something incredible. Of course I hadn't. But I, I, it kind of stuck with me, this idea of experimentation and, and data-driven optimization. Um, and I always sort of applied, tried to apply it wherever I could with, with varying degrees of success in, in every sort of role that I went into subsequently. Then in 20. 12, I think my wife and I were both about to turn 30 and we felt like we were in this massive rut. We had two mortgages and we just thought, oh God, we're getting old and boring. And at that time, the Australian dollar was very high against the euro. It was historically high against the euro. And so we put all of our stuff in storage and uh, moved to Berlin for three months and, and partied on for a whole summer. And lots of our friends did the same, weirdly. Some of them are still there. And um, we spent every dollar we had. Uh, and then I had to go to London and get a job. And I think this might have even been before the dominance of LinkedIn, sort of circa 2013. It might, I don't think it was even through LinkedIn, but I got a call from a recruiter who said, hey, you've got the words uh, A-B testing in your CV. Uh, do you want to become the first in-house optimization manager at Britain's largest mobile telco? And I went, Yep. <laughs> and, and started that job. That was my first sort of proper full-time dedicated optimization job. Um, and I still made a bunch of mistakes, um, but I learned from them <laughs> over time and slowly sort of honed in the discipline of optimization and, and specifically how you can embed that kind of culture of data-driven optimization in a big company. So I, I subsequently did that at a big broadsheet newspaper and then at a big department store in Australia. And, and then as a consultant working with lots of organizations, sort of helping them not make those same mistakes that I did, um, helping them to run better optimization programs and actually sort of get the results that they're hoping for. Perfect. Perfect. And as you were talking about e-commerce, um, especially here on the, on the podcast, how, how vital are um, A-B tests for, for e-commerce businesses? I think it depends on what size e-com business we're talking about. Um, you know, if you are, I, I wrote a blog post uh, I don't know, a year or so ago called You Probably Don't Need A-B Testing. And that was really because I got sick of having meetings with prospective clients where I ended up telling them this. People have this idea that A-B testing is, um, you know, the the absolute be all and end all. And they think it's a, you know, it's a, a sort of a, a necessity for optimizing their website. In my experience, it's, that's really not the case unless you fit a handful of criteria. Firstly, you need to have a lot of traffic to be able to um, gain, you know, valid, statistically significant inferences. You've got to have a lot of traffic. I mean, what yeah. is a lot of traffic? So I think this, this is a very uh, important information. So what, what is a lot of traffic uh, so that it makes sense? And what is a significant uh, number for, for uh, tested visitors? Well, it's, it's very variable. So 
the variables that you're looking at when you run an A-B test, when you're assessing an A-B test for statistical significance and validity is basically what is the minimum detectable, oh, sorry, what is your baseline conversion rate? Um, so the higher your conversion rate is going to be, the less sample size you'll need to have. Also, what is your minimum detectable effect? So if you have got a 3% conversion rate and you want to run an experiment to increase that, if the minimum detectable effect that you, you want to measure is a 5% uplift, which is pretty big, even on 3%, um, you are going to need a lot more traffic than if you were looking to detect a 25% uplift, for instance. So most A-B tests don't get double-digit uplifts. This is one of those things that I think has sort of plagued the industry for many years. You know, just like people running stupid button colour tests like I used to, there's a lot of agencies out there and indeed a lot of vendors out there that talk about these you know, these moonshot kind of lottery result type experiments, the ones that do get double-digit conversion uplifts. Typically, they are the, you know, nobody talks about the, the grind, all of the flat or, you know, declining or just insignificant experiments that they've run up until then. Everyone sort of hypes it up by, by planting the seed of, of double-digit conversion uplifts. Most experiments are conclusive. There's a, there's a data set that optimizedly provided to a couple of professors at Harvard Business School, and they looked at an entire year of experiment data for all of Optimizely's customers. So I think it was you know, 800 customers or something at that time. And they found that within that, only 10% of experiments were statistically significant. I think these numbers are, are, are actually correct. If they're not, they are mostly correct. You get the point. Um, but it was, and I think within that, they said 5% was a positive uplift and 5% was negative. So 90% of those experiments did absolutely nothing at all. Mm. Um, so what I'm getting at this with this is to be able to justify having an experimentation program or, or maybe to a certain extent having, having an agency, you need to have enough traffic and enough revenue that you, when you do get those big uplifts, they mean something to you. If you're 25, you know, if uh, the clients that I work with normally, a 1% uplift will mean millions of dollars. Uh, mm -hmm. And we might get one or two of those a year. Maybe we, yeah, you know, sometimes, sometimes we might go 10, 20 tests without getting a big uplift. And that's okay because when we do strike those big uplifts, they more than pay for the program. But the costs of running an experimentation program, the costs of just in terms of your, you know, whether it's dev resource, if you're doing it internally, whether it's having an agency, just your, your you know, focusing your attention on it can really add up. And I think for most businesses, you know, without, without you know, putting a size on it, you know, unless you do multiple tens of millions of rev revenue and have, you know, multiple hundreds of thousands of visitors per month, I think probably you would do a lot better to spend your time talking to customers, just doing user research, sitting down and talking to customers, understanding what their pain points are, um, rather than seeking to run A-B tests. And the thing with user research is no one likes doing it for some reason. You know, it's, 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 it's anyone will, in my experience, do their absolute very best to get out of sitting down and talking to customers. Um, but the fact is, that's where you find the gold. 
That's really, really, really interesting. And I like what you say, because typically uh, you see a lot of recommendations online in blog posts and for, of course, those companies selling the tools for split testing that everyone should run A-B tests and uh, to optimize things. And what you said actually is this is a part of a, especially if you're a smaller company or if you don't have these millions in revenue, <clears throat> that A-B testing is not something you should focus on, which is actually a great recommendation because every store owner, every agency we're working with and that we, that are um, listeners of our podcast, actually, uh, the smaller ones, actually, they, they anyway don't have time. Yeah, they, 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 they have already a lot to do with marketing, with product optimization and all this kind of stuff. I mean, not running additional work means a lot for them. Mm. And I also say, if you can focus on optimizing um, your products your, and talking to customers, optimizing the descriptions and all these kind of things, you don't need an A-B split test for that. You just mm. can do that. And this is very important. Let's assume bigger ones that, that really have the need for A-B testing, what tools do you typically recommend? Um, I've, I've had a long relationship with Optimizely mm -hmm. um, and, and it's been great until oh, probably two years ago or something now it got bought out by a company that I can't even think what their name was, but an enterprise CMS sort of content management company that actually changed their name to Optimizely um, now. So Optimizely has traditionally been very, very good, and I've recommended it really wholeheartedly. I've worked with organizations that have sort of bought the Adobe suite, and I've managed to kind of bat them away and bring in uh, Optimizely. I'm a bit more hesitant to recommend Optimizely these days, um, partly because the product isn't very you know, highly developed and it's sort of, it's becoming quite bloated and integrated into the broader CMS. Um, also, it's it's quite expensive, um, which I think is fine. You know, they've gone after this idea that optimization should be, uh, um, or A-B testing should be an enterprise um, scale endeavor, and they've launched enterprise scale pricing. That probably happened about five years ago. It used to be that, you know, there were lots of very small uh, businesses that had optimized the accounts and got fairly middling results and paid for them with a credit card every month. And, you know, just like VWO and others are now, but they are very much enterprise. But so historically I've recommended Optimizely. These days I would lean perhaps more towards something like convert.com. Mm -hmm. Okay. Got it. Yeah. yeah. Um, and what I find very interesting, um, you're an outspoken critic of, um, of heat maps as a conversion <laughs> optimization tool. Why? I like uh, them. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I mean, I like them too in a certain way. You know, they, they absolutely have their place. Um, one of the – see, I wrote a, I wrote a, uh, a blog post, which was originally called something like Why Heat Maps Are Shit, and I later changed it to, uh, um, I don't know, <laughs> um, The Case Against Heat Maps. I thought it would tone it down a little bit. But um, the thing that gets me about heat maps is they're one of those things that every sort of CX tool adds. Everything sort of, you know, bundles in heat map functionality. If you look at some of the rhetoric that's used to sell them as a tool, like Crazy Egg in particular, they really talk about heat, ma uh, heat mapping as being this absolute salvation. I feel like once upon a time, they 
could be a little bit useful for certain use cases. So I think heat maps are great doing one or two things in particular. So telling you if people are clicking on things that aren't links, for instance, if your links aren't obvious enough, a heat mapping tool is an excellent way to learn that. But they also become fairly problematic in the age of, of responsive viewports. You know, when everything was fixed on a sort of a single pixel grid, you know, 15 years ago or something, you could aggregate all of that heat mapping click data uh, in a way that, you know, it made a lot of sense. You could really see what users were doing. But now, you know, I see in my clients, I don't know um, if it's if it's the same in Europe as it is here. I presume it is. Most of my e-commerce clients are you know, 80, 85% plus mobile traffic. Yeah. What does heat mapping do with mobile? What does heat mapping do yeah. on mobile? Yeah, that's true. Absolutely. So it's actually the few parts, which, which is the problem. Yeah. Mm. So well, also even, even the kind of the, the not clicking, you know, heat maps do this interesting thing where they track where people click when they're not clicking on links and, you know, full story, which I like as a session replay tool has got mm. this thing it calls like rage clicking when people click a lot of times out of frustration. I don't think people do that so much on mobile. Um, but really my, my sort of um, tirade against heat maps sort of comes out of the fact that I felt that they are still used fairly widely. There's not a lot of criticism out there about them, despite the fact that they do have a bunch of shortcomings. And I also feel like people tend to lean on them a little bit because they look cool. They look great in a presentation. Um, they, you know, they look very high tech and compelling, but I think there's much better ways to find out the sort of information <laughs> that people purport to get from heat maps. Yeah, I mean, it makes sense. And mm, I would say heat maps should still be used where they are relevant. So if it's, let's say, a B2B software product, typically those products are open on the desktop browser or on the laptop. And there it makes totally sense uh, still to, 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 to have uh, or to, to measure um, the clicks. But you are fully right for an e-commerce business uh, where most clicks nowadays come from the smartphone. Um, they, they literally don't make sense anymore. I think the other sort of grievance I have with heat maps as well, though, is I think that they... It's very rare that I've opened up a heat map and, and looked at it and said, oh, right, now I know exactly what I should do, which is really how, the, how they're sold. Me, I feel like it's a bit more like opening it up and looking at this sort of neon-coloured Rorschach blob and going, what do I do here? And I think that people actually use them as a way of sort of steamrolling through the things that they wanted to do anyway, but purporting to use some data to make that case. Mm -hmm. Makes sense. Makes sense. Absolutely. Um, <clears throat> now we, we talked a bit about the, let's say, common mistakes. Um, um, you, you mentioned the red and, uh, red and green buttons. Yeah. Are there any typical other common mistakes that optimizers do and that you should avoid when you start A-B testing? Yeah, so many. Um, great question. Yeah, there's a handful of things that I am constantly advising my clients on. So. Um, uh, you know, some of the basics would be just not having a pro proper hypothesis. People tend to sort of come up with hypotheses that say things like, by enlarging the size of the hero banner, we will increase engagement, which is one of those things that it sort of sounds fine until you look at it too closely and indeed until you come time to analyze it. And I've written those sorts of hypotheses myself, hypotheses myself. Um, and the issue with a hypothesis like that is 
there's really nowhere to go with it. So when you come time to analyze it, you have to go, what's engagement? And engagement can mean whatever you want. You know, you could call it conversion. You could call it clicks. You could call it time on site. You could call it bounce rate. You could call it uh, pages per session. So one of the things that I'm, I'm very adamant about doing as a necessity for any A-B test is ensuring that you have a properly formed hypothesis that says what you want to do, what you're doing, what that will impact and how you will measure that. So I just use this really standard formula that says by doing X, we expect to see Y as measured by Z. And what you find when you come to analyze the experiment then, it's dead simple because you've already registered what you think it will do and how you're going to measure it. So then when you, when you analyze the experiment, you just check that metric. Did that happen or did it not happen? Very simple. What it also does is by forcing your thinking through that, um, through that particular sort of formula, it ensures that you do the hard work up front. It almost it helps form your experiment design from the get-go. So you just you can't be fuzzy or vague about what you're doing. Once you form it in, in that sort of format, um, it's very clear if your experiment's a winner or not. Mm-hmm. Very interesting. For the small amounts, I mean, uh, for, for the smaller um, um, companies, I mean, of course, they should analyze the website and, and, and see what. But I think would, would user testing here make more sense to really have some of the customers going with them through the website, through the web shops and, and let them explain um, how they feel? Yeah, 10,000%. So yeah. in that, that blog post I mentioned earlier, which says uh, you probably don't need you probably don't need A-B testing, that's what I say. I say is just sit down with customers and talk to them. Um, yeah. Even if you are doing A-B testing, that's probably the next biggest mistake or maybe even the bigger mistake that I see my clients making is coming up with clever ideas for A-B tests. And again, this is something that I used to do myself as well. I would come up with uh, what I thought was a really clever change just out of my brain. Um, and I'd think, oh, A-B testing is great. I can use this to prove how clever my idea is and I've got data to back it up. This is awesome. Um, and of course, your ideas are crap. They're terrible. Like most ideas are terrible. Most business ideas don't move the needle. The presence of A-B testing software that allows you to measure your ideas doesn't change that. So one thing that I say is that everybody should be using A-B testing not for discovery, but for validation. So whether or not you're running experiments, Make sure you're talking to customers, doing qualitative research, using customer aggregators. So even if you don't want to sit down and talk to customers like no one does, talk to your customer service team. If you've got, um, if you've got people that are on the phone to your customers, if you've got um, people that are selling face-to-face to your customers, these people know. Uh, well, certainly the the um, the people that are dealing with inbound calls from your website, they know all of the problems with it. Uh, so they're great people to talk to. The people that do sales, they know all of the best ways to sell things that you might not be doing in your website. Um, so whatever you do, I think it's necessary to get very close to customers and their thoughts. And then if you want to run A-B, A-B tests from that, certainly you can do it. And it's going to be it provides just an extra level of validation. And it's going to ensure that you have a far greater degree of success than if you just come up with ideas out of nowhere. Cool, cool. Very, very great answer. Thank you. Uh, one question that is in my mind, um, <laughs> we talked about the reds and the green buttons. Is there a, still a valid reason not to have a red button? 
<laughs> I don't think so. I really don't think so at all. I think the thing with buttons is um, the only time that a button test is going to do well, I think, is either when, particularly with button colours, if your buttons don't have enough contrast, you know, they need to stand out enough against the rest of the page that customers can actually see them. And the copy on the button needs to make sense. It needs to be linked to the action that they expect it to have. But otherwise, I have to say, I don't go in for this sort of, um, uh, what would you call it? This sort of like like psychology of experimentation. I don't think that there's there's a lot of edge to be had in you know green means go, red means stop, anything like that. I think it's it's more about providing just a, a coherent and you know and usable service, and that'll get you streaks ahead of the competition in most cases. Okay, cool. Um, last question for today. Um, who uh, taught you the most about e-commerce in your career? Who told me the most about e-commerce? Um, no, no answer springs to mind there, but I can tell you uh, the person that told me the most about optimization is a, a very outspoken uh, Scottish bloke by the name of Craig Sullivan, who's very, mm -hmm. he's been working in optimization for a very long time, um, thinks about it 24-7, is very outspoken, very knowledgeable, and, and shares a lot of that knowledge on Twitter. He's on Twitter as Optimize or Die. And uh, if you're interested in optimization, I really, I recommend following him. Yeah, that's cool. I, I know and I'm following. It's really um, um, a great, great uh, guy, great resource um, and very, very knowledgeable. Absolutely. Um, so, Oliver, thank you so much for being on the show. It was really a pleasure talking to you. And uh, what I learned actually is as a small or mid-sized e-commerce company that, that has not millions of revenue, it doesn't make sense to run A-B tests actually with a team. Um, it makes sense to talk to customers to understand how they use the web store, how they interact with the, the, the web presence and maybe validate what they are saying with a test or with an A-B test, but not actually really put everything on A-B testing and think that the revenue will grow and grow um, uh, just because you're testing enough. 100%. In, in the final minute of this conversation, Norbert, let me just offer one more point. Is Absolutely. Conversion is transactions divided by sessions. Um, what people really forget, I think, is that half of conversion rate is traffic. So I think one of the things that I'm increasingly advising my smaller clients to do to optimize their conversion rate is to focus on getting better traffic. Sure, do the UX stuff, but once you've done that, stop. You know, I, I find that people are often really over-investing in some pretty junk-paid social, under-investing in SEO. And I think if you can tune up your, your traffic channels, that can go a long way toward increasing your conversion rate as well. Fully underlined that and 100% agreed. <laughs> that's, that's, that's the thing. Okay, thank you so much. Have a great time. And uh, yeah, if you liked it, just hit the subscribe button and we see you on the next show. Bye-bye. Thanks, Norbert. And that's it for this episode of the Ecom Ops Podcast. If you enjoyed listening and would like us to find and interview more e-commerce operations experts, please search for EcomOps Podcast in your favorite podcast listening app and then subscribe, rate, and review. Until next time.